Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Brian H. Williams, the author of The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. How are you doing today, Dr. Williams? I'm doing fantastic to have me on your show. Can you start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project? Yes. Uh, first, I would say I am an Air Force brat, you know, child of a career Air Force veteran who served 23 years. Uh, so my sister and I and my mother, we spent our lives moving every three to four years to military bases around the country and around the world. I spent some time in Japan, a hardship tour in Hawaii. And uh, inspired by my father's service, I went to the military myself, went to the Air Force Academy, was a first-generation college graduate, and served on active duty, then later went to medical school, and eventually became a trauma surgeon, you know, did some training at Harvard, Emory, and moved to Dallas, Texas. Uh, didn't plan to become an author. Writing a book was not part of my life plan. Uh, but after a mass shooting of Dallas police officers in July of 2016, uh, in the aftermath of that, I really began to evaluate what I've been doing in my career, what I could do more to serve my community. And from that, this book kind of morphed over the course of years. And I really wanted to, it's a deeply personal memoir with a lot of storytelling where I wanted to pull the reader into this world of being a trauma surgeon, uh, being a black doctor, what that means for healthcare, but also explore bigger issues, uh, racial justice, gun violence, how public policy impacts our lives. And it's kind of pulling along that story to, it's heavy, but meant to be a roadmap towards hope and healing. And I hope it's a call to action for anybody who reads the book to do something differently the day after they finish reading the book. Now, in chapter one, you describe the emergency room when there's a death of a black male. Can you take the audience there? Yeah, so I really wanted to work hard to pull you into what it's like to be a trauma surgeon in the trenches when there's just this epidemic of gun violence and being on call and see five, six, sometimes a dozen gunshot victims come in over the course of a shift. And uh, we have very professional teams that are focused on saving lives, but the humanity of these injured victims uh, can't lose sight of that. And I, I always told myself, if I no longer cared about these strangers, then I need to change my line of work. And pronouncing so many young people dead on arrival due to gun violence and talking to their parents, um, that, you know, that really changed the person, right? I just really want to change that so nobody had to deal with that grief. And I always at the end, when there is a death due to gun violence, have the team stop for a moment of silence. So I want we, us all to just honor our shared humanity, at least for a few seconds, uh, recognize that tomorrow is never promised, and that all of us has a role that we can do to, to make the world a better place today with our time here on earth. And uh, that's what's kind of propelled me to do more to uh, serve, my, serve my community. Now, you talk about being in a society, being a black doctor in a society that devalues black life. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so there are fewer black men entering medicine now than there was back in the 70s. 
So, you know, over the course of a few decades, our numbers are decreasing. So that, what that means is when I go into a hospital setting, uh, I'm one of the few people that look like me. But many of my patients do because I've chosen to work at safety net hospitals. So they, these are hospitals that care for the indigent, uh, those with the low socioeconomic means. And many, this, this is a proxy for people that are, you know, black and brown people. And so I feel obligation to be present for them because I feel that anyone, everyone deserves high quality uh, healthcare. Um, but we talk about the exploitation of black people in medicine for medical experimentation. That, that goes back generations, right? We talk about Tuskegee, but there's so much more. Like J. Marion Sims, who did barbaric operations on enslaved women. Uh, we did whole body radiation on black people in the late 60s to test the effects of uh, nuclear bombs. But again, these were things that were sanctioned by the government, right? We were doing this on black people and we did learn a lot for medicine as a result, um, but we can't ignore that people that could not say no were used against their, their will. And that's what I mean when I say that medicine devalues black people. Um, but there's a lot of good that can come from that too. So that's what I want to shine a light on that as someone who's worked in medicine, has benefited from all that and seen in humanity, what can we do to honor the humanity and move forward and make healthcare just for everyone? Now, what should policymakers focus on concerning the black balance? See, here's a thing. If we look at how policy has intentionally excluded uh, black people, uh, from many segments of society and the results that persist today. If we recognize that, uh, we can understand, we can recognize, look at our history, understand our present to make for a better future. Um, there's examples outside of medicine. As I said, I wanted to use my career in medicine as a jumping off part to bigger things. So let's look at the GI Bill. The GI Bill after World War II uplifted millions created a middle class that persists today. It allowed returning veterans to get uh, housing loans and education loans. So people bought a house for the first time and passed it along to their children. So wealth was generated and passed along. People could go to college and get a degree and get higher paying jobs for the first time, uh, transformed families. But Deidre, those benefits were denied to about a million black service members who served in World War II. And it's been called one of the greatest racial injustices of our time because they, despite having served honorably, did not get the benefits of housing loans and education loans. And we see that wealth and education gap still persists today, right? So that's what I mean, like policy that was put in place that hurt black people. Uh, we need to recognize that and put policies in place that will not just remove the barriers, but uplift entire communities that have been suffering. And everyone will benefit from that by doing so. Absolutely. Now, you were in the emergency room on July 7, 2016. Tell us what happened and how that changed your life. July 7, 2016, uh, there was a mass shooting of Dallas police officers in downtown Dallas. And it's, it's a night that I still think about to this day. Now, for some context, uh, 2016 was the election season between Clinton and Trump. 
July 7th was a day after Orlando Castile was shot and killed in Minnesota by a police officer. It was two days after Alton Sterling was shot and killed by a police officer in Louisiana. So on July 7th, there were protests scheduled all around the country. But also earlier that year, we had about a month earlier, we had the mass shooting in Orlando at the uh, Pulse nightclub. There were other shootings throughout the year. So this was kind of a crescendo leading up to this point. But on July 7th, the shooting, the um, protests in Dallas became violent when a lone sniper army veteran was there targeting police officers, shot 14, seven were brought to the hospital where I was working at the Trump. And three of those officers died from their wounds. And uh, the, the night nearly broke me. And I just, losing a patient is hard. Losing three that rapidly uh, is hard, but also the context of what was happening uh, outside the hospital uh, put this all into a different perspective. And it was, it was after that night, I now walked into the room after having put on clean scrubs once again, telling the parents about their loss of their, their, their son. Uh, I, I broke down. I just, I broke down. I've never done that. And uh, that was a moment where things began to shift in me. I don't know if you've had that moment, Deirdre, where something happens to you and you realize that you were different afterwards. Uh, you may not be able to describe it, but you're just different. And that's how it was. I was different and was kind of on a new path of how I wanted to serve uh, my community. Absolutely. Now, in Chapter 2, you talk about the demons. You didn't have this desire as a child growing up to become a doctor. How did you become a doctor? <laughs> You're, that is correct. That was never part of my life plan. I, when I was young, I didn't see black doctors, and they talk about you you can't see it, you can't be it. It never crossed my mind to go into medicine. Well, I knew I'd go into the military, and I did, and I was an aeronautical engineer. That was my first career. Uh, but a lot of my friends were in medicine. So I was exposed to it that way, listening to their stories about taking care of patients. And I was very intrigued by that. And I later decided to go to medical school. So I was, what, 27, 28 years old when I went to med school. So most people are graduating school at that time. <laughs> I was studying medical school. Uh, so I made a choice to change my career to become a healer. It's, it was a very conscious choice to make this this leap. And I, I don't, don't even look back. I mean, I've... This has been a very rewarding career. Uh, I can't describe the rewards that come from being able to help people uh, in their times of need and the friends I've made along the way. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Now, in Chapter 3, you talk about the pain of the loss of your grandmother. How was that an example of health inequality? So my, my grandmother, my, on my father's side, had uh, asthma. And one day... She had a, a bad asthma attack, which was treatable, but she just needed to get to the hospital quickly. But that was at a time where emergency medical services would not enter the black neighborhood where they lived. So essentially, she died because they would not send help where the black people lived. And uh, that's an example of how racial disparities in healthcare are the result of systemic issues sometimes, right? And that just straight out racism there, right? They just, that was straight out racism for that. But she was, she could have survived that, that, and it's still my father, uh, it happened on his birthday. So uh, he thinks about that. In fact, that's a reminder on his birthday about the death of his mother 
which is preventable. But I use that. I talk about what came, what come, came later is how the emergency medical system that we take for granted now with, with ambulances and paramedics coming to you in times of need, that began in Philadelphia with a group of black men who were hired to drive these ambulances uh, in Philadelphia. And that grew to become what we now consider our national EMS services. So an example of what, when, when black people uh, benefit, everybody benefits, right? Just got to talk about the history. Just got to talk about the history. Absolutely. Chapter four, you talk about the long blue line. Tell us about that incident in Hawaii where your mother called you Brian Henry Williams. Yeah, so we were, uh, except my dad was in the Air Force, we moved around a lot. We spent a, spent a time, some time in Hawaii. And up to that point, I, I'd been called the N-word several times throughout my, my life. Uh, but that one day, uh, I snapped. <laughs> I snapped at this kid and just began to pummel him. It was all out fisticuffs, just unloading, just all into anger uh, that I had on this kid. And, you know, my mom was like, you know, Brian, you're trying to get me to stop. Whenever she says Brian Henry Williams, I know I'm in trouble. Like, that's the full, you know, First name, middle name, last name. I, I knew I'd crossed this line, but I was out of control. Um, but it was a moment that when she grabbed me, pulled me off the kid, and I, you know, it was the last time I got in a fight. That was the last time I was in a fight. But I've been fighting my ever since, right? The, the fight became internal. How to control this anger, but be outwardly non-threatening. How to be successful and progress in my career despite seeing all the injustice I see in my job and around the country, uh, what is it called? Uh, you know, internal, internal battle of two different beings within me trying to serve and trying to maintain my anger. I was trying to simply trying to be honest about that, that, uh, I do have these feelings and, uh, I do control them, but now I'm at a point in my life where I've channeled that anger into good, try to channel that into being of service. Now that it can be self-destructive as it had been in the past. Yes. Now you talk about your military lineage going all the way back to grandparents. Tell us about that. Yes, I'm very proud of this. My I come from a long line of veterans. My great 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 I guess great 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 grandfather actually served in the South Carolina Regiment for the Union. He was actually enslaved and then uh, served in, in the Civil War. Uh, others served in World War One, uh, World War Two, fought in the Pacific Theater, served in the Pacific Theater in the, in the segregated units. Uh, my dad, again, twenty-three years in, in the Air Force, so military service is that is the family business. Uh, but looking back, you know, my my great 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 grandfather who served in the Civil War, he was enslaved, fought in the war. Afterwards, uh, received the plot of land. And that land is still in my family today. They're, you know, they've been farming on that land for generations. And I think, like, could he even imagine that someday one of his descendants would be would graduate college or become a doctor or do what I'm now doing, which is you're know, running for, for office to, to serve in Congress. Like, they're just trying to get by day to day and survive. But in a few generations, we've come a long, long way. And I think the, I credit the military for giving us that sort of sense of service, um, 
social service and camaraderie and community, uh, but also recognizing that we have a long way to go to manifest all of the ideals that are professed in the Constitution, right? They served when all those rights were not given to them and did it anyway with honor. Uh, so I will continue that. And there's much more for us to do. Yes. Now, in Chapter 5, you talk about your experience at the Tampa General Hospital. What was the advice that was given to you about AIDS and hepatitis in that hospital? Yeah, so as a student, I was on my trauma rotation. And, you know, when the senior trainees, a gunshot victim came in, uh, died from their wounds, a black man, and... You know, I was enthralled by the actual uh, the adrenaline and the rush of trying to save this patient, but it was afterwards recognizing how this dead black man was treated as more of a specimen to to teach. And the way he talked about this patient using terminology that I would not use to describe individuals, but then saying, look, I want you to feel in here where we, you know, we tried to save this patient with a thoracotomy, some broken bones. He said, you know, do not catch yourself on a rib because if you, you know, you need to catch AIDS or hepatitis or some, something else that you don't want to catch. It was all very clinical. It was very true <laughs> also. Um, but I felt it was detached from the reality that before us was a young black man who has a family who will never see him alive again. And uh, that sort of humanity was missing from all that discussion. And uh, I, I don't want to lose that. And I want to make sure my trainees don't forget about that as well. Now, you talk about the body brokers and their promise to provide this barrel cost. Tell us, what did you find out there? Body brokers, it's an industry, modern industry, uh, for gathering uh, non-transplantable body parts for uh, medical science. All right. Um, it's unregulated. Uh and it's uh, it's become a problem because what they do is they will they will make uh, promises to people that look we'll take care of your burial costs you know you sign the body over to us uh, we just need to use some of the, some of the parts for uh, science uh, but what's happening that they typically prey on people with low low economic means so poor people and then these bodies aren't always disposed of in a humane way there have been some horrific stories of uh, large the mounds of body parts being found behind some of these uh, these uh, buildings and institutions that are not disposed of uh, properly. So it's it's, it's a for profit business that is uh, highly unregulated, and it's a separate from transplants, like separate from getting heart transplants and organ transplants. This is a that's regulated. This body broker stuff is not. But I go back. When I'm talking about this. What's happening now? I go back. You know. You know. Another century when through medical education to get bodies for students to do dissections and things, they would actually go rob the graves at the black cemeteries, exhume the bodies, take them back to their uh, schools and dissect these bodies. You know, basically they were grave robbers, grave robbers. And these bodies were uh, rarely returned to where they came from. And recently, um, I think mid eighties, early bodies, I'll double check the date, but they actually found thousands of bones beneath one of the medical schools where the bodies have been stolen and just disposed of uh, without a proper burial. Yes. Now, you went from Florida to Boston. Tell us about that Boston experience. 
And so I did medical school in Florida at the University of South Florida. Then I went to, as just so people know, when you, you go to undergrad, then you go to medical school, then you do your residency, which would you specialize in something. Surgery was what I did, psychiatry and trauma medicine. And so I went to Boston to do my surgery residency at a place called Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is one of Harvard Medical School's main teaching hospitals. And I just, I had a blast. I was, you know, getting to operate, take care of patients. Um, some of my closest friends now are from my intern class. Uh, but also during there, I had my share of experiences where I'd walk into a room and a patient would see me, I'm their doctor, but tell me to take out their trash, uh, clean their empty tray of food. I've had patients refuse care for me because I was black. So there, at every stage of the career, despite my training and my desire to heal, I could still be marginalized and dismissed because I'm black. And I'll I describe that through a book that's happened at every stage in my medical career. However, I feel my presence is still important. I'm here to serve. And particularly in healthcare, we have such significant disparities in race as far as outcomes. We need more doctors of color in their profession. And, you know, doctors, nurses, therapists at all levels, administrators uh, who understand how these lived experiences so that we can provide the best quality of care for everyone. Now, you also um, had your wife to return to Boston, and then you got married. Yeah, I met my, I met my wife in Boston uh, and got married. We've been together, oh, we've been married, maybe 19 years this September. So she's been along the entire journey from residency to fellowship to being an attending. <laughs> so uh, she, she has her own story to tell and also... I mean, the book, if you, in the book, she's a central character. She's the voice of reason at key points in the book. Uh, and also my you know, biggest critic, biggest cheerleader of the story without her in it is not as interesting, I don't think. Um, but also like several key moments, she was the one that helped me go left to her right during the story. Yes, and congratulations. Chapter seven, you talk about... Um, the move to Dallas and going on a ski trip. Tell us about your police encounter. Yeah, so I was going on a ski trip. Actually, snowboard. I was a snowboarder. But uh, I was waiting for my ride to the airport, standing outside of my apartment complex. And somebody saw me standing there and called the police. And the report was that there was a bald black man acting suspiciously. I found this out after the fact, but at the moment, I just remember the police coming up to me. I do. I was. I froze. I was. I knew no matter what I did, even if I did everything correctly, that this could end with me being beaten or shot. And I didn't know what was happening, but it's that fear. It's that initial fear of police approaching me uh, that uh, that was visceral and uh, unforgettable. Uh, it you know it ended fine, but afterwards when I learned that I'm standing in front of my own apartment complex and someone calls the cops, like did they know that that could end in my death? Did it even cross their mind? And uh, I, I described that fear. But also say, look, I respect anyone who, who wears a uniform. I I wear the uniform. My dad wore the uniform. If you're gonna wear the uniform and serve, I respect I respect that that job, that commitment, and that service. However, you know I. I do have a fear of, of police and that's because of my own experience and the stories of my uh, family members. We know 
And I think people recognize that now because it's been such a, uh, you know, we had so many videos that have come out and as we talk about it more often, that this is a realistic fear for communities of color, but we still want to be part of the solution. We don't want to walk away from this, at least for me, still be part of the solution. And I actually had a chance to serve as the police review board chair here in Dallas, uh, the mayor appointed me. So I had a chance to work with the police and the community to bridge that gap of uh, trust, which is a very, which is a phenomenal learning experience for me, but to get out there and do that. Absolutely. Now let's go back to the incident with the police officers. How did you approach the families? I thought that was so touching when you describe how you approached the family members. Well, just before I even go talk to a family after uh, death, I check to make sure I don't have any blood on me. Uh, I was soaked in blood, so I had to change my scrubs and wipe off my shoes and put on my white coat. And we have a family room where we have these discussions. They were already sitting when I came in. And what I do is I, just, I, I walk them through what happens. I tell them, I introduce myself, uh, tell them not to, I'm going to tell them what happened. They can stop me at any time, ask any questions. Um, but, you know, families want to know if their loved one is alive or not, right? When you tell them that they're dead, uh, you get all sorts of different reactions you know, from different people. Some very emotional, some say nothing. Uh, but in this moment, uh, talking to the police officers, uh, mother and our father and stepmother, uh, before you finish the thing, the, the father said, that's okay, Dr. Williams. I know my son is dead. I know you did everything you could. I thank you very much. I thank the whole team. And for me, that was very touching because he was comforting me during my time of grief while putting on a good face to try to comfort him. And we've been close uh, ever since then. We frequently see each other and talk and text. Um, so that, that tragedy has bonded us in a way uh, that's really hard to explain. Now, four days after the shooting, they needed somebody from the hospital to talk with the media. And that's where the society knew and found out about Dr. Brian Williams. Tell us about that day of getting in front of the camera. Yeah, that, that press conference changed everything, Deidre. Before that, I lived a comfortable life of anonymity. I've been asked to give interviews before that always declined, but that day changed things. Uh, they asked me to come to this press conference they were going to have to talk about the shooting, and I initially declined. Uh, I didn't want to be part of it. Uh, I was still reliving that night. It was a very traumatic night for me. I, I felt, um, you know, I, I, I avoided the media. I wasn't turning on the TV, the news. I was in my own little bubble, going to work, and going, to, going home. And when I was asked, I said no, and I told my wife, they're going to have a press conference. You may want to watch this press conference, but I'm not going to be there. And she got back to me right away and said, you have to go to that press conference. You don't have a choice. Get over yourself. This is bigger than you. And her point was, you know, you had a, you had a black sniper who was shooting police officers. The whole, out there it's Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. She said they're saying that black men are evil. They deserve to die. People need to see that that night that they're you. The black doctor were there trying to save these cops, especially since I was the only black doctor, <laughs> black trauma surgeon in the group. And it was initially my night off. I was supposed to be off that night, but I changed shifts at the last minute with one of my partners. 
But you just go there so they can see, they can know that, that you were there. But I did. I showed up, had no plans to speak, but then I did speak because what was being said, or actually what was not being said at the press conference didn't sit well with me because we weren't talking about racism. We weren't talking about policing. We weren't talking about gun violence. And I said, we have to talk about this or nothing will change. So in the moment I spoke, it was heartfelt, unplanned. And from that point on, that moment went viral and my life changed. Absolutely. Now, tell the audience, you have a daughter and you took her to the the Martin Luther King class project in kindergarten. And she had a question. I thought this was telling us about young people today. Yeah, so at the time, my daughter may have been five or six in either kindergarten or first grade. Uh, daughter's multiracial. And they were talking about Martin Luther King. And she asked me this really pointed question. She said, if I was living back during that time, would I have to go with the white people or the black people? So she was asking questions about her racial identity and what that meant. And it just kind of floored me because it was, it was a deep question. Um, and it was, it was also sad that she felt like she had to make a choice, right? There's something implicit in our society that says you have to make a choice about that. And my response was like, look, you don't have to choose. Like, you don't go with anybody. You have them follow you because God put all the best parts of everybody <laughs> and put them into you so they will follow you. And, um, but you know, since then, you know, she's 13 now, she's a teenager growing into her own. But I just want her to know that like you, you get to be who you are. You come as you are. You don't have to change yourself for anybody. Now, you tell us about some of the terms that you avoid. Tell us about those terms that you just don't use. Undeserved. Yeah, so yeah, I, I try to avoid using terms that describe communities uh, that, that, that deny their humanity. We talk about marginalized communities, underserved communities. Uh, I, 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 I now try, I use the term like communities of opportunity, right? We need to see not what's missing, what's absent, but what is possible. And also how we work with the members of the community because people that are closest to the problem often have the best solutions. So I, I try to inject when I'm talking about this and solutions, because the book is supposed to be hopeful. It's about path towards healing. You use terms that are hopeful and, 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 and that are positive and collaborative. So communities of opportunity, I feel, and it's not my term. Some, I heard this from someone that said, I like that. That's a great way to describe this. And I've been using that more and more when I talk about how we can transform communities that have endemic violence, communities that have high rates of uh, healthcare uh, disparities, low educational opportunities, housing, uh, lack of housing. What can we do to uplift entire communities so that everyone can thrive? That is what I've committed to. I look at three communities where all can thrive. Now, in Chapter 18, you talk about the economical tools of gun violence. Tell us, what are the suggestions you have here? Well, I believe that we all have the right to live free of the fear of gun violence. And we can save lives and respect our Second Amendment rights at the same time. These are not mutually exclusive. They can go uh, together. And the perspective I bring is as a trauma surgeon who has seen uh, too much needless death and suffering due to gun violence, seen too many families torn apart by gun violence. Uh, as a veteran, I've trained on weapons. 
And as a family member, a uh, survivor, I've had members of my family taken from me due to gun violence. So it's personal and professional. Uh, but as an academic, I've studied solutions. I, I wrote this book and I served in Washington as a health policy advisor uh, for Senator Chris Murphy when we passed the gun safety bill uh, two years ago, the most significant gun safety bill in a generation after the shooting in Uvalde. So it's possible to use policy to save lives and still respect our Second Amendment rights. So that's what I'm talking about. And bringing the perspective of everyone to the table, not just the mass shooting victims. And to be clear, any one loss of life due to gun violence that we can prevent is too many. But my everyday life as a trauma surgeon was just the uh, violence that comes from handguns that are happening every day. What can we do to reduce that sort of gun violence? Intimate partner violence, unintentional shootings. <laughs> There's so much we can do with the right leaders in place. Yes. Now, after a person reads your book, what message would you like them to leave with? The book is a call to action. And I want them to leave with this, that if we're going to reduce needless death due to gun violence, we have to uh, address how race and racism impacts our outcomes, our view of who are worthy victims, and how our policies are put in place uh, around guns. Because we all deserve to live free of gun violence, and we have to uplift all the voices uh, in, in the efforts to create communities where our kids and we uh, can thrive. Call to action. My call to action on running for Congress. What your call to action will be, uh, I don't know. But I hope it's something different than the day before you read the book. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Oh, right now I'm in the midst of a congressional campaign uh, running for U.S. Congress in District 32 in Dallas, Texas. That's an open seat. And if elected, I'd be the first trauma surgeon in Congress. And I'll also be the first black doctor with voting privileges in Congress. Uh, you can learn more about that at drbrianwilliamsforcongress.com. Uh, we're primaries 15 weeks away. And as far as my other writing projects, I have a book idea I've been going back and forth with uh, with my agent, uh, trying to flesh that out. And uh, keep following that at my other website, uh, brianwilliamsmd.com. But that's what, I'm, that's what I have going on. Another book in the works and hopefully be a member of Congress next year. <laughs> Well, we'll be looking forward to seeing you there and all of your next books. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.